as this is our fourth week of our series in, in Jude, we're going to finish up the book of Jude and our scripture reading this morning, reading from Jude 1, 24 and 25. Listen as I read these words. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen, church? That's the way that Jude concludes this book that he has written, this letter that he has written. I want to let us remember once again these words that we've been singing through this entire series. That's based off of the greeting that Jude extends. And these words we sing, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. These are words that we can sing to one another. As we have received the mercy, peace, and love from our Father, we can share it with our brothers and sisters as we encourage each other in the faith. Let's sing these words again. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. For you are kept by Christ. For you are kept by Christ. Let's raise that one more time. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. For you are kept by Christ for you are kept by Christ Father we thank you for that mercy peace and love that you have granted to us God I thank you that we can extend that to one another and encourage each other in the faith God we thank you for these words in the book of Jude that have been challenging to us that have opened our eyes, that I pray have been encouraging to us all. God, thank you for your love. God, may we live with it each day, sharing it with the world. We love you, Lord. Amen. Hey, you may be seated. And as Dusty comes to, to give us the message this morning, the kids can be dismissed to Paul and Kara in the lobby and uh, for their programming. Thank you, Daniel. Good morning. We are glad to have you in worship today. Thank you for making this a part of your Sunday morning today. Dorothy Sayers is a Christian author, and uh, she points out that in our society, there are two kinds of laws. There is the law of the stop sign, and then there is the law of the fire. Uh, first, the law of the stop sign. Now, if you are a Scotian and have been through downtown lately, you know the law of the stop sign. The law of the stop sign is the people, the powers that be, get to come together and say, we don't like that stop sign there. We're going to take that stop sign away. And guess what? 
we all still stop at the stop sign. <laughs> they take it away, and uh, 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 they have the power to do that. Uh, if you've noticed, not only is uh, First Street taken away at National, but also Second Street has been taken away. So now, downtown is like just a straight shot, and there are still people stopping. How many of you have stopped? Yes. How many of you have been behind that person that just Raise their hand. Yes, that's, that's it. But that's the power. That's the, the, the law of the stop sign. That people get together and they can vote and they can say, we want a stop sign. We don't want a stop sign. And by the way, if we do want a stop sign and you disobey and you go through it, it's going to be a $5 fine. It's going to be a $50 fine. It's going to be a $500 fine. We get to determine that. That's the law of the stop sign. The law of the fire is quite different. The law of the fire, she says, is like this. If you stick your hand in the fire, you're going to get burned. And it doesn't really matter how many authorities you get around the table to vote on it. You can vote all day that, you know what, from here on, from this day forward, when somebody sticks their hand in the fire, it's not going to burn them. We can, we can take that vote. won't matter because the law of the fire is unchangeable. You stick your hand in that fire, you're going to get burned. And what she points out is that the law of the fire is different than the law of the stop sign because the law of the fire is bound up in the nature of the fire. Bound up in its nature is the penalty for abusing it. And so she says this, God's moral law is like that. It's like the law of the fire. You never really break God's laws. What happens is that you break yourself on God's laws. God can't reduce the penalty because the penalty for breaking His law is bound up in the law itself. And the message of Jude so far, as we've been journeying through these four weeks, has been about this. It's been a warning to the readers of Jude about God's unchangeable moral law. It's been a wake-up call to us because we, we can get around and we can vote and we can say the fire's not going to burn us anymore, but God's law isn't susceptible to your vote. It's like the nature of the fire to burn you just like that. It's the nature of God's law to break you when you cross it. And so Jude, uh, one of the things he does, he, he pulls the fire alarm on us and says, we are sinners, we are rebels, and judgment is coming. That's the, the message of the book. And the unsaid question the whole, the whole time is, well, how do we escape all of this? How do we escape the false teachers, what they're telling us? How do we escape these voices that are leading us away from God? How do we escape all of the sin that this encourages us to? And if the book, honestly, if it ended last week where Joel left off in verse 23, our plight would be more dire than ever. And maybe that's why Jude's last words to us are his most famous. There is a way to escape the third degree burns that sin will push us into. Uh, this far in the series, Joel has been tasked with feeding you kale and broccoli. That's what's happened. And today, I get to stand up and give you cake and ice cream. Oh, I guess. Okay, twist my arm if I have to. These closing lines that Jude gives us are called a doxology. Literally, it means words of glory. And they're little short 
praises of worship to God. There are several doxologies in the New Testament. Uh, a couple worth noting today, because they're similar, are doxologies of Paul. There's one in Romans chapter 16. It starts off this way. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. There's one in Ephesians that Paul writes. He starts the exact same way. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask, think, or imagine. And here in Jude, Jude starts out the exact same way. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Do you see the pattern? Jude picks up on the lines that Paul uses, and he points us directly to God himself. Despite all of the despair in talking about a world filled with sin and judgment and our struggle against it, there is a hope. That's where Jude is going to land the plane. He wants us to know that what we are called to cannot be done in our power alone. We need help. And there is help for us. We have a God who is able. The text reads, to the able one. And the word behind able is this Greek word dunamis. It's the word that we get, pick up on in our English when we use, when we come to the word dynamite. That's the word behind dynamite, dunamis. And it just means power, power. We have a God with great power. He's able to do something about all of the false teachers and all of the sin and all of the false teaching that, I, that they encourage and all of the shame and guilt and despair that we face when we give in to those things. He's able to do something about it. He's powerful enough that when you're drowning in sin and you need someone to throw you a life preserver, he can do it. He's powerful enough. He is able. And specifically, Jude says he's able to do a couple of things in a couple of important ways. First, he's able to keep you from stumbling, keep you from falling, some versions say. Literally, it means to keep you, he writes this way, God is able to keep you unstumbling. That's what he literally writes. And one writer in Jude's day uses this uh, word to describe a horse that is sure-footed, that doesn't ever stumble. Now, if you're on the back of a horse and maybe you're on top of a mountain and you're on rocky terrain like this, you want to be on the back of the horse that is sure-footed, right? Uh, if you're on the back of the horse that is not sure-footed and you take a roll down the hill, that's not, a very bad, that's not a very good day, right? We all want to be on the back of the horse that is sure-footed. And Jude writes that this is what God has the power to do, to keep you and I from being tripped up, to keep us in a constant state of unstumbling. And God is able and has promised to keep us from falling. Now, first, that's massively reassuring, isn't it? Fighting the sin in my life, keeping myself in God's love like Judah has asked me to do, building myself in the most holy faith like Jude has asked me to do a few verses earlier, staying true to him, praying in the Holy Spirit uh, like Jude has asked me to do. All of those things, it turns out, are not totally up to me. There is help when I need help the most. God is trustworthy when no one else is. And when I'm about to fall, God will keep me from slipping. Before the world shut down last year, I was able to make a trip to uh, Oregon. 
and uh, I went to see a good friend, uh, Andy, and Andy took me to a place just outside of Bend, Oregon called Smith Rock. Anybody ever heard of Smith Rock? I don't see any hands. I didn't know about Smith Rock. Smith Rock is uh, the birthplace of modern American sport climbing. Um, Smith Rock is 600 feet tall, this, the face of this mountain, and there are just dozens and dozens of climbing paths all the way up to the top. And um, this is a picture of me, and I, there's a red line uh, to the right of my face there, and I put that red line there because above, just right above that red line, there's a path that winds you to the side of Smith Rock where you do some switchbacks and you can go all the way to the top. And uh, by the time I was at the top, I wanted to jump off because it was, it was not, not a good day. Uh, but I wanted to zoom in. There's, there's our path that people are climbing up and there's a little red square I want you to focus in. And you might be able to see a dot in that red square and this is what's in the middle of that square. Here's a climber with a rope. I want you to go back to the first picture. See how far away this is. Now to the second one. And our climber is in that little red circle and there's our climber. That's amazing. Now, I, I gotta be honest, I have no desire whatsoever to dangle off of the face of a rock 450 feet in the air. No way, okay? But if that were ever the case, safety would be my first priority. And with good climbers, it is. Every climber that we saw that day was hooked to the mountain with ropes and with clips and, and uh, spikes driven into the stone. In rock climbing, climbers are roped together. So the inexperienced climber goes first and the experienced climber is below either on the rock or maybe even on the ground with a belay rope. And that way, if the inexperienced climber falls, they won't fall fatally. The, the experienced climber is able to hold the rope and hold their weight so that they won't fall fatally. And I think that that's the idea that Jude is giving us here. When we choose to bind ourselves to God, He keeps us safe as we make the climb through life. Now, what that doesn't mean is that sin doesn't matter anymore. No, no, no. We might read this and think, okay, God will just keep me in His love and so I can do whatever I want. No, 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 that's, that's not it. And that's actually what Jude was telling us the whole letter. That's what the false teachers were trying to claim. They were saying, you know, you're made up of body and spirit and they are two separate things and God has your spirit over here. He's keeping your spirit. So don't worry about what you do with your body. You can do whatever you want with your body. And Jude says, no, 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 that's not it. You can't live however you want. Sin matters. It matters greatly. Ask this guy, 400 feet up in the air, what would happen if he missed a handhold? What would happen if his foot slipped off of the rock? Sin matters. That's why Jude warns us so sternly about it. Sin can lead to rejecting the only God who saves and falling fatally to our death. Sin absolutely matters. But the good news here 
is that God has the power. He is able to make sure that our sin that matters so greatly does not do us in. Our sin matters, but your sin, because of God's great power, won't send you falling to your spiritual death as long as you keep yourself in God's love. God has provided all of the safety equipment necessary, if you'll go with that analogy with me, to keep your fall from being fatal, to keep you saved. I want you to think about some of the equipment that He has put in place to keep us saved, to keep us in His love. He's given us continuing forgiveness. Every morning His mercies are new. God has given us the tool of the, the power of the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, His Spirit to walk along with us as we go through life. He's given us the instruction in His Word. He's given us prayer, a way to dialogue with Him and know Him as a friend. He's given us each other, the fellowship of believers in the church, and probably the greatest resource that God has given us to keep us saved is His unending love for us. His love for us is the basis of our assurance. And so we have all the equipment that we need to be faithful as we climb through life. And our job is to use it. God's power and our trust in His power must come together. God has provided the rope. We could say it that way. And it's up to us to, uh, up to, us to trust that that rope will hold and then grab onto it and use it. And Jude's point here is that life is best with God. If you, if you want to unhook yourself and jump off the rock, you can. It's your choice. God's not going to keep you there against your will, but if that's a consideration, guess what? The law of the fire will apply. In this case, it's the law of gravity. It's no different. And Jude gives us example after example after example in his letter of people who did, who, who decided, I'm jumping off the rock. I don't want you, God, in my life anymore. Rebels in the desert, rebellious angels, immoral cities, Cain and Balaam and Korah. And when they jumped off the rock, they didn't escape judgment. When they jumped out of God's arms, judgment came. And it always will. But the hope of Jude here, as he concludes the letter, is that there's a way through the judgment. There's a way, actually, to be exempt from the judgment. And that's the sure footing that God offers. This unstumbling, sure-footed climb is going somewhere. We are headed to a destination. God is able to keep us from stumbling. And then the second thing that He's able to do is present you before His glorious presence. He has the power to do that. It means that He has the power to put you in front of or to put you before or to stand you up in His moral splendor. And the idea is a really formal idea. It's, it's suggestive of being introduced to a dignitary. I want you to think uh, what you would... Uh, what you would, how you would prepare if you were to meet the Queen of England. How would you present yourself to the Queen of England? Would you go in shorts and a t-shirt with grass clippings all over you like you just got off the mower? 
Probably not, right? This is a different kind of situation. This calls for a suit and tie, cleaned up, actually using soap, right? Dress, heels, that's how you would want to stand up in front of the queen. And what Jude is pointing us to is the final judgment scene that will come for all of us. Glory will shine from God in all of its awful purity on judgment day. God's presence throughout scripture is commonly characterized through imagery of brilliant light. And that dazzling righteous light will be so piercing that nothing in its beam will be hidden. When we step into that light, all of our impurities will show. It's kind of like shining a black light in a bathroom. Even if you just cleaned it, you just don't want to do that. It's better, you're better off, right? Before God, we will desperately want to present ourselves and stand ourselves up in the best way we can, but we will be unable to. Our impurities will get all of the attention. The prophet Malachi imagined that kind of day on Judgment Day, trying to stand as presentable before God, and he says this, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And the implied answer is no one. No one will be able to stand based on the lives that we have lived. Not one of us, because all of our gross filth and grime and scum will begin to glow when we walk into God's light. And so, naturally, if that's the case, and we know it to be true, when we think about having to stand before God, it's natural to be filled with fear. It's natural to be filled with shame and guilt. We imagine having to step into that light and all of our sin exposed, we, ex we imagine God being disappointed or angry or even furious. Whatever you imagine, it won't be pretty. But that's not what Jude writes. He calls us to the truth that something has happened that rewrites the script. Now we can enter into God's presence differently. And here's how. Jude says, God will present us himself. He will stand us up before himself. We won't have to do that. We won't have to fix ourselves. He will do that. And the way he does that is the kicker. He stands us up in front of his glory without fault. The text says, blameless. Now that's an amazing statement. It's not the only one in Scripture. Paul says the same thing in Colossians 1.22. He actually uses the exact same word. He says that we will present, be presented or stood up in front of God as holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, how is that possible? Because as we know, the black light doesn't hide anything. It exposes it. And the word blemish might help us out. If we put blemish in the word in place of fault or blameless, uh, the American Standard Version actually reads that way. And blemish calls us back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. It makes us to think of the animals that God required for a successful sacrifice for sin, and they had to be without blemish. They had to be perfect. That's the only way an animal sacrifice was acceptable to God. They had to be perfect in every way and without defect, without blemish. And if you were one of those people having to take a goat or a ram or a bull to to the temple to sacrifice for your sins, the, you had to get the perfect one. And you understood 
The lesson was pretty clear. That not only does this animal have to be perfect, but by extension, so do I. I have to be perfect. And you and I understand today that in order to get into God's presence, we have to be perfect. But we're not. But God is able. And He has the power to keep us from falling. And then He has the power to enable to us uh, to, to stand us up in front of Him without the blemishes. And so on that day of judgment, when none of us would be able to stand on our own, when, when the dazzling light of God hits us in the soul, that great black light won't reveal anything because God has stood us up Himself. Nothing will be exposed. All the blemishes will be gone. The twisted deformities of our souls will be straightened out as if they were never there in the first place. Our sin will be wiped away. We will be clean, having no faults at all. God will say to us what He said to the high priest Joshua in Zechariah, see, I have taken away your sin and I have put rich garments on you. You thought, when you entered his presence, that he would be mad. You thought that you would at least get a tongue lashing, if not just banished forever. But what you get is exactly the opposite. Well done. Super job. Here's your tux. Here's your gown. There's not a person in this room that doesn't want and hope and long for that kind of voice in their life. There's not one of us in this room that doesn't want somebody close to us to turn to us occasionally, at least occasionally, and say, you know what? You're a great person. You know what? The world would be better if there were more people like you. You are beautiful inside and out. You want to make somebody's week this week? Turn to them. And say those things. In the end, God Himself will be that voice for us. Looking at you, looking at me, saying, I love you. You're beautiful inside and out. You're not guilty. You are without fault. Put yourself in that place. Put yourself on that day when God, the God, the creator of the universe says, I love you and you're beautiful. There's nothing left but joy at that point. And that's what Jude writes, that he will stand us up without fault and with great joy. And with great joy parallels without fault because only when we are without fault can there be great joy in front of God. And I want you to note something, and it's not apparent in the text. You kind of have to get into the grammar of the thing. Here it is. It would seem like it's our joy. And there's no doubt that when we are stood up in front of God and declared to be without guilt, blameless, that there will be great joy in us. But do you know whose the joy really is? The joy is all God's in this text. He is the one filled with great joy because of what he's been able to do. There's a doctor, let's say, this is a hypothetical, and he traveled into uh, the jungle. 
to provide medical care to a primitive tribe who is afflicted with a contagious disease. And this doctor has all of his medical equipment flown in. He has correctly diagnosed the problem to cure this, this people of their, their disease and their problem. He has developed all the antibiotics and they're prepared and available. He is independently wealthy. He has no need of any kind of financial compensation. And so he flies in with all of, he's going to be the hero of the day and he seeks to provide care. And when he gets there, no one will come to him and be healed. He has to go weeks and weeks and weeks of persuasion. Please come to me. Please, I can fix this in your life. Finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care being, uh, that is being freely provided to them. And the disease is removed and they are healed. And at that point, what does the doctor feel? He feels joy, right? And his joy begins to increase to the degree that other sick people begin to come for him for help and healing until all of the, the surrounding area is healed of this disease. And he's filled with joy because that's the whole reason that he came. And that's the way it is with Christ and us. He doesn't get flustered or frustrated when we come to him asking for forgiveness again, for renewed pardon because we are distressed and in need and empty. He doesn't worry about that. Why? Because that's the whole point. That's why he came to heal us. God has the greatest joy here in this text. And on that day of judgment, because he's the one that has provided the way that we can be saved. And that's why he's come. And so it's no accident how Jude concludes. He says that the reason that God is able to keep us from falling and to stand us up before his glory without fault and in his own great joy is because he is the only God who is Savior through Jesus Christ. This God we worship is the only God. And the only God that there is acts towards us in a certain way as Savior. And that truth alone is the, one of the things that makes Christianity unique about, uh, from every other path. This is the one of the deep truths about Christianity that separates it from every other path. Every other path says this, you have to do the work. You have to reach up to God. We even say it this way, God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible, by the way. Reach up to God. Jump, jump real high. He set the bar up there, but you keep jumping. Good luck with that. There's no surprise that almost that word-for-word -word thought is actually found in the Quran. It says this, Allah will not change the condition of a people until they change what is in themselves. What is that? Jump high. Try to reach up to God. No, Jude says, not this God. This is the only God. And He reaches down to us as Savior. He doesn't make us stretch out to Him. He stretches out for us on a cross. And so when we're drowning in the waters of sin, He doesn't say, swim harder, swim faster. No, no, no. He dives into the waters of sin with you and brings you out at the cost of His own life. 
when you reach up, he reaches down. And there's no other God like that. The only God who is Savior. He is the God who saves. We could say it this way, that God is the author of salvation. And then equally important is the through Jesus Christ, our Lord, part of that equation. Jesus is our Lord. Salvation is from God. And it comes through the work of Jesus, who is our Lord. God is the author, we could say. Jesus is the agent of salvation. Jesus brings the work of salvation about because of the cross and because of the resurrection. He is the God of salvation. And he is joyful to give it because that is why he has come. Some people today uh, just don't, don't really buy that we need saved at all. God? Really? You still believe in that? Sin? An unchanging moral law. What an outdated and pathetic concept. You know what? What we should do is just get all around, all of us around the table and we'll just take a vote. Let's just vote on what's right. Let's just vote on it and we can take the stop sign down. Let's just vote on it. We can take God's law down and sin won't be a problem anymore. And the law that he supposedly has given won't be a problem anymore. We'll just vote on it. Decide that it's no longer valid. And here's the problem. The law of the fire cannot be voted on. And that's the message of the book of Jude. Lots of people think that the Christian religion has run its course and that the gloom of Good Friday is now settling over the long history of the church, but they are wrong. Because the reality of the resurrection cannot be undone that easily. You cannot outvote an empty tomb. We're going to talk about that next week. It would be easier to reach into a fire and not get burned. And so when judgment comes, as it will, and we see for the very first time who it is we really rebel against and how perfect his standards are and how ghastly our sin is and how serious he is about his judgment, on that day we will see with fear and wonder how mighty the work of the cross really was and really is and really will be forever. Jesus' death on the cross changes our story. He gave himself, get this, as a sacrificial lamb without blemish. He gave himself as a sacrifice. He was without fault so that we could be without fault before God. He's the reason that God gets to stand us up and say to us, you're not guilty. And the reason that we know that that not guilty verdict will stick is the resurrection. An empty tomb proves that Jesus really was the perfect physician come with the perfect antidote to our disease. And so the point to which we've come is obvious, is it not? That God is the one who saves through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If God's salvation is only through Jesus, then have you made him Lord of your life today? He will keep you. He will save you. He will present you blameless and give you joy unlike you've ever known. But it's not automatic. It's not a given. It's contingent. 
And it's contingent upon you making Jesus the Lord of your life. Have you done that? The way you do that today is by meeting certain conditions. God's grace is unconditional. But as we are called to accept that grace, there are absolutely conditions that God asks of us. The first is faith. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That He has come with that perfect antidote for our disease, which is sin. And the second condition is baptism. Baptism is the occasion where God does His saving work in us, forgiving our sins so that He can stand us up in His presence without fault. At baptism, He applies the blood of Jesus to our souls. He makes us clean. Faith is the means. Baptism is the time. And so have you met those conditions to make Jesus Christ your Lord? That's the right response today. And that's what you're invited to today. And with Jesus as Lord, all of great, God's great power will be on your side. And He will be able to do what He has come to do. I'd like you to stand at this point, And we're going to end this way. That God Himself acted with all of His power on our behalf to rescue us from judgment. A judgment we thoroughly deserve. What that means is this. That forever, heaven will echo with our shouts of praise. And that's how Jude ends. He gives us these little short bursts of praise. He says, to the God who saves, through Jesus Christ our Lord, how great is He? To Him be glory. To Him be majesty. To Him be power. To Him be authority. And may all of those qualities be ascribed to God for all time, before there was time, right now in time, and forever time to come. Because of what God is able to do and has done in love for us, we can trust Him. And our response is self-evident. It's worship. And so we will. That's the way we're going to end the service. The song says, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. And along with Jude, in his final word, all the people said, amen.